Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everybody, and Happy New Year from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Marisa Lagos. And we are starting 2020 with something of a throwback. We're going to give you a sneak peek at our upcoming series about the politician who helped define California in two separate centuries. That's right. This year actually marks the 50th anniversary since Jerry Brown's first statewide campaign back in 1970. And uh, after he left the governor's office a year ago, we sat down with him over the course of several months at his ranch in Calusa County talking about his entire life and career. And the result is a four-hour-long four specials and eight podcast episode that's titled The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. That's right. And actually, right now, you can find a sneak peek of that show in the Political Breakdown podcast feed. We're also going to be putting full that's episodes. plug number one. Yes, exactly. Plug number one. There'll, There'll be a couple coming. more. Yes. Uh, you can also find a full episode soon of the show in the Political Breakdown feed. Uh, we hope you check it out and enjoy. Yeah. And we should say we also spoke to people in addition to the governor, people who knew him in uh, different parts of his life. And one of them, State Senator Steve Glazer, joins us in just a few moments. But, you know, guy, I think it was almost a year to the day when we went up to the mansion. Uh, it was uh, Jerry Brown's last day or two in office before he was going to g- retire to the ranch. I don't think he'd use the word retire. Uh, and we were going to pitch this idea to him. We had pitched the idea right, it's of actually, doing an oral history. It was December of last year when we first met with him in the governor's mansion just to kind of talk about the series. And the first point we had to work out was like, how much access were we going to get? We were partnering with the Bancroft Library uh, at UC Berkeley. And one of the first questions I thought he asked was, well, how many hours did my dad do in his oral history? Yeah, you could and you could just see because we we did this with the Oral History Center at uh, Bancroft Library, and you could just see the sort of the wheels turning. Like, okay, my dad did thirty hours, so I'm going to do more. And in, indeed, we talked to him for about forty plus hours. That's, of course, you could argue he had he held a few more offices than his dad did too. That's right. And we, I think, initially, so we did a couple sessions up there in Calusa County at his ranch. Uh, it's just. Him, and and a couple dogs couple up dogs. there. Yep. Uh, and I think after the first couple sessions, we thought, oh, my God, we need to start interviewing some other people because these interviews are not going so well. Well, you know, we started off. We went, This was sort of a chronological interview, um, and we started off with his childhood growing up in uh, – San Francisco, his dad was the district attorney, and clearly, at least at that moment, and maybe he was just getting to know us, but uh, 
uh, you know, what the whole pro- project was going to be, but it was like pulling teeth. A yeah. Bit. He did not really want to talk about his childhood and just insisted he had a you know, childhood like anyone else. Um, and, you know, you could argue, well, yeah, but your dad was kind of a up and coming politician. But, you know, it was interesting to hear his take on growing up and how different being the son of, well, any son, really, that, you know, he talked about helicopter parents today and had some strong feelings, although he's never had kids himself, uh, talking about the way parents and, and their children interact today. Right. He saw it almost as two different worlds. Like his dad was doing his thing. He was district attorney in San Francisco, attorney general of the state of California, then became governor uh, in 1958. And Brown was kind of in his sheltered existence, living a totally different life. He was in the seminary uh, for a few years. And it was only in 1960, as you'll hear in the first episode, where those worlds kind of intersected. Carl Chessman uh, was this was on death row in St. Quentin Prison. Pat Brown was weighing the execution, weighing whether to add another moratorium. Uh, and he got a call from Jerry Brown, uh, fresh out of the seminary, who didn't really know the political world at all. Which but, he says now. I yeah. think probably back then, my guess <laughs> is he thought, thought yeah. he did. Uh, and he talked his father into giving him a reprieve. Which was know? a disaster. This was, I mean, Pat Brown had just had a tremendously successful first year in the governor's office, uh, passed the master plan. Um, And then his son basically could have potentially derailed his political career. I mean, there's some Pat Brown advisors who say even though he would go on to win re-election, he never really recovered from that Chessman decision, giving him a moratorium. Chessman ultimately was executed. uh, And that was all all thanks to Jerry. Yeah. Although, you know, Jerry says, well, it was uh, other people trying to talk him into that as well. But, uh, you know, but it it is it was one of the things that was so great about all these hours we did spend with him. Uh, is just to hear his reflections, you know, and clearly he has changed uh, his beliefs about money and politics and many other things uh, from the time he ran uh, for secretary of state back in 1970. And, um, you know, and this, of course, 2020 is coming up. It is here now. And we've got a really momentous presidential election. We talked with him about his three runs for president, three very different runs. Right. I mean, 76, he was like the shiny new object. And then, you know, 80, crash and burn. 92, last man standing against Bill Clinton. Right. And that's really when the conversations picked up is when we got to talk about politics. He's he seemed much less interested in talking about family relationships, personal relationships is really when it got to kind of a political science course. And that's ultimately what I felt like we got at the end was a 40 hour political science course with someone who's been in the game a very long time and has seen ups and downs, lots of different races. And he kind of laid out different theories, as you mentioned, about money and politics, about ways to run as an outsider, about how he approached the governor's office the first time around and how that how it changed, how he approached it the second time when he got back in office in 2011. Uh, his years as Oakland mayor, which I think was a real opportunity for him after spending so much time perched up in state government to really get down, get hands-on in different city departments. Told us he actually liked being mayor in some ways more than being governor. Yeah, he was walking the streets. He was riding along with police officers. It was a totally uh, different experience and the inverse experience that most elected officials have where you start in local government and and work your way up. Um, Yeah, just, you know, tremendously fascinating conversations. Yeah, and interesting, too, how in 1970... He managed to run as a political outsider, even though his go- his dad had been the governor and lost to Ronald Reagan in 1966. Uh, and just one of the many kind of transformations of, of Jerry Brown that we that we talked about. Uh, and we'll, and again, this is a series that's going to be debuting on KQED uh, starting January 8th uh, at eight o'clock. There's going to be podcasts, eight uh, episodes, and a podcast are going to drop 
on January 11th. And if you can't get enough of Jerry, uh, we're doing an event with him at Herbst Theater on January 13th. And uh, you can get tickets for that at kqed.org slash events. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by a longtime advisor and colleague of Jerry Brown, State Senator Steve Glazer. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, here this week with KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati. And our guest today is Steve Glazer. He's known uh, for many years. He was Jerry Brown's chief political consultant. But today he is a state senator representing most of Contra Costa County and parts of Alameda County as well. Steve Glazer, welcome to The Breakdown. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me. Well, I know you uh, have uh, established yourself as a politician in your own right, and we do want to talk about that. But, you know, tell us how you how you met up with Jerry Brown. You started, We always talk with our guests, no matter who we're talking to, about their, how, their life, how they got into politics. You were a student at San Diego State University in the 70s, mid to late 70s, uh, and you were active in student government, right? What were you doing? Yeah, I was active in my, my local student community. And it was a, a, a close follower of politics, had been a volunteer even before going to college. And I uh, liked what I was seeing in Jerry Brown uh, as the new governor and volunteered to work on his reelection campaign in 1978. What was it you liked about him? I liked that he was challenging the status quo, that he was an environmentalist, that he talked about equality, talked about energy conservation. Uh, he was fiscally uh, frugal. Those were elements that were appealing to me. And you were organizing for Brown on campus. What did that entail, and did you ever get to meet him in the course of that campaign? Uh, so my responsibilities were a little broader than that. I was in charge of 20 colleges in California, uh, uh, selecting a coordinator on each of those universities and then working with them throughout the course of his his campaign and was able to bring him to San Diego State, where I, I had met him before, but that was certainly we had a giant 5,000-student rally for him during that re-election. Um, and, but it was uh, it, it was a... Uh, a detached relationship, you know, just like any volunteer uh, would be. Uh, you get to meet the candidate a little bit, but you don't really get to know him well. And that was 1978. He's running for re-election, and it's in the wake of Prop 13 uh, passing. What do you remember about 
Prop 13 and the role of Prop 13 in that campaign? Was that something that students uh, were interested in? Uh, it really, uh, well, first it was settled in the primary and it was how we responded to it in the summer leading to the November election where it became a, a bigger issue. Meaning Prop 13 passed in June. It passed in June. Yeah. Uh, the, the bigger issue at the time really was Rose Byrd, uh, his appointee to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court, the first woman chief justice. She was controversial from the start because of her lack of judicial experience. And the Republicans really were focused on her and him. Uh, he had uh, successfully embraced the results of Prop 13 during the summer. Uh, was it Evel Younger, who was the attorney general running against him, uh, went off on a, Hawaii, on a vacation to Hawaii. And uh, that uh, created a stumble and an opportunity for Brown to kind of see this, take the stage and, and, and direct how we were going to respond as a state to Prop 13. Young people are, as you know, as both a former political consultant and as an elected official, young people don't vote often. You know, they have a, a lower propensity to vote than, you know, the older you get, the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to vote. So how hard was it interesting, stu you know, getting students interested in, uh, you know, politics generally, but Jerry Brown in particular? Uh, he brought some excitement to the arena. Uh, he was a younger guy, remember, he was elected in his 30s, uh, so looking for re-election in his early 40s. Um, but no, nothing's really changed there. I mean, there's a there's a, a, an engaged student community that uh, will will be loud, but in terms of the broader student body, I don't think things have changed. There's a lot of apathy, both on on-campus activities as well as uh, uh, state and national politics. So again, it kind of gets the sizzle to the political system every cycle, as we would say. But uh, as to whether it really it results in a meaningful change in the electorate, I've uh, been dubious since my college days. So Brown won that 78 election. Fast forward four years later, he runs for U.S. Senate in 1982, and you were also a part of that campaign. I want to play a little excerpt from our interviews, this concept that Brown kept coming back to about the political eye and how valuable that is to have uh, as a politician. Some people have a good eye, uh, people don't. Well, that's something to be developed if you're a politician, to see what the lay of the land and, and certainly in campaigning, what works and what doesn't work. And as Brown told us, in 1982, he felt like he kind of lost that political eye. He couldn't identify what would be a winning issue against Pete Wilson in that election. Did that Was that something you were feeling within the campaign at the time? Well, now my roles had changed from a volunteer to being a deputy campaign manager. Uh, and uh, I think that, that the challenge for him, and it's a good lesson for politicians, is that you can be overused and overseen and overheard. And Jerry Brown had kind of been on every issue for years and years. And so sometimes that you can wear well for a while, but wearing well over eight years can be a challenge. In fact, when he lost that election in 82, uh, his famous press conference the next day was that I think that uh, people have gotten tired of me and maybe I've gotten a little tired of them. Uh, and it was an acknowledgment that uh, uh, he was struggling to try to find uh, an issue that could pierce through uh, the baggage that he had collected. That he, 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 Pete Wilson didn't win that election. It was Jerry Brown's to win or lose. Pete Wilson wasn't that well-known of a mayor from San Diego. Came out of a bruised Republican primary. Uh, he was standing, and Jerry Brown was stumbling, not able to find some ground in which, solid ground in which he could seize the, the attention of the electorate again and, and win that Senate re-election, that you Senate election. You mentioned Rose Byrd, but what, <clears throat> um, what impact do you think the whole MedFly issue had. You know, there was a whole controversy about whether to spray malathion or not, and he seemed to waffle on that. 
Well, it goes to those you know the qualities of Jerry Brown, uh, some of which uh, I love and some of which can create some challenge. And Jerry Brown, uh, you know, saw in every question lots of answers and and a desire <laughs> to try to get more information and more research and more facts. And so on one hand, it, it allowed him to make thoughtful decisions about policy, and other times it created a, a, a paralysis, a paralysis of analysis. And the MedFly is that classic example of where he couldn't decide what was the right thing to do. He was concerned about toxics, chemicals, and and uh, so he had a broader view of that worry, <clears throat> and uh, it, it led him down a difficult political path. So he, after he lost that <laughs> election in, in 1982, he, Brown went into the political wilderness. He went to Japan and India, but you stayed uh, involved in state politics. And one of the campaigns you worked on was the uh, the campaign in 1986 of the Chief Justice Rose Byrd. How did you get involved with that? Well, I, I uh, after Jerry Brown's uh, election or non-election in 82, I was hired to be Gray Davis's first staffer uh, in the assembly uh, where I worked on his efforts. Uh, uh, and then it was uh, after a period of time there that I was looking for new opportunities and the Chief Justice and her staff reached out to me to ask if I'd be interested in, in, in working for her. And I uh, we came to agreement. I, I was her spokesperson as a judge. She can't defend her decisions, can't uh, speak out uh, uh, in the political realm. And yet it was the hottest election of, of 1986 was her reconfirmation. And so that was my opportunity to, to represent her there. Just a reminder, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with politics reporter Guy Marzarati, And our guest this week is State Senator Steve Glazer. Just to fast forward a little bit, um, obviously, Roseburg was recalled along with two other justices. Uh, you went to work for Kathleen Brown, who ran against Pete Wilson. And then you went on on, on your own and you created your own consulting firm. What was it? Did, did you in any of that time, I mean, obviously you're in public office now, but you took a long time in politics and helping politicians before you yourself ran. Um, what was it that sort of helped you make that transition? Well, I had I had I run Jerry Brown's campaign for governor in 2010 uh, and then worked with him for a couple of years to, uh, with all the political challenges, fiscal challenges he was facing in the governor's office. And it really was uh, at the end of uh, 2012 when we were successful on, on getting the, the taxes that could stabilize the budget that I was looking for new opportunities and new challenges in my life that I decided to. I had been on my city council in the town of Arinda for almost 10 years, um, and I was looking for ways to try to either retire or take my experiences and try to advance what I saw on my own as a, a deeper political conversation about where our government should be headed. You know, in some ways, all the time we've spent with Jerry Brown, as and as successful as he's been in politics, he's not a doesn't strike me almost as a natural politician. He's not a glad hander like his dad. He doesn't necessarily go into a room and you know want to make small talk with everybody. And I'm wondering, you know, like how much of him do you see in yourself in that regard? Well, I think that he's focused on uh, ideas and policy, and uh, that that's a driver. I certainly share that uh, deeper uh, desire to understand uh, how things work and how we can make them better. Uh, I, I find myself to be outgoing. I don't know what people would say about me, but uh, I enjoy people and I enjoy the social interactions uh, that come out of it. Uh, as a state senator, I've had uh, over 20 town halls in my uh, neighborhood, so it's not like I'm afraid of uh, being out there and, and, uh, and, and engaging. So I, I, I find myself enjoying the political world, both the social side of it 
and the intellectual side. I mean, Scott mentioned politicians who are different than Jerry Brown. I think Gray Davis stands out as, as someone who is uh, operates in a very different way, even though he was Brown's chief of staff during the 1970s. Were there lessons you learned working for Gray Davis in the state assembly uh, that you didn't get working for Brown or things or things that you took forward in your own political career? And it could be lessons of things not to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, Gray uh, was a master at the political mechanics. Uh, Jerry Brown liked ideas and could seize upon uh, the feelings of people. Gray was a, was a mechanic. He had a, there was a regiment to what he thought mattered in politics, uh, and he was uh, obviously an ambitious politician. And, and so you can learn from that, the good, the bad. Uh, neither one of them were the greatest with, uh, in terms of building their, their staff team. Uh, so I've certainly taken some lessons on the other side of that from them, uh, both the mechanics of politics on one hand and also how to treat people well and, and build loyalty within your team. Uh, so all, all those are experiences in my life. They, they've affected how I, I view things, and uh, you know, it, it makes me who I am. I think the thing that allowed you or made you feel like now you can run for office for the state legislature was the passage of Prop 30, which increased taxes uh, to pay for schools and other things. And that was a really a pivotal, pivotal moment uh, in Jerry Brown's career, because if that had not passed, what would have happened? Well, with the schools, which had been spared uh, some of the significant cuts in 2011, uh, Jerry Brown came in with a $28 billion deficit, $20 billion structural. Uh, the legislative Democrats and the Republican Arnold Schwarzenegger couldn't agree on what was to be done. So they passed the buck and they borrowed and they played games and all the rest. And so Jerry Brown was not going to do that. He was going to own up to the problem and speak plainly and frankly to people about what was necessary. Uh, and and he, he set priorities. And so a lot of their early cuts spared the schools. And it was very clear that if uh, that, that proposition hadn't passed, the schools were going to get the brunt of the, uh, the cuts going forward. And that was the tough medicine uh, that he was prepared to do. And he was also hopefully had built the credibility to explain to the voters why that choice meant they should support the higher taxes. And he was very transparent in that campaign saying, you know, I'll, I'll take contributions to this ballot measure committee no matter where they're coming from. He needed money to, to take on powerful business interests. Um, and it kind of goes into an evolving uh, view he's had around money in, in politics. He, when he ran for president in 1992, was almost running against the idea of money in politics and, and campaign finance reform. I want to play another little piece of, of what he said when we asked him today uh, about donations. Really, no, people want, it's so hard to raise money for almost all candidates. Any money you can get is great. The only reason you wouldn't take it is you think your opponent could use it against you and it would cost you more in votes than you would earn in votes with the money you got. So I, I don't think it's much principle involved. So that's definitely different than what you'd hear from the 92 campaign for president. But I mean, in, when you're in the trenches, you're running this campaign for Prop 30, uh, that must have been something where he felt like, okay, I can't, I can't pay attention to where these donations are coming from. Well, sort of like what Pete Buttigieg was talking about right. in, in that debate. Like, oh, hey, if somebody wants to help me pass Prop 30, I don't care if they drill for oil for a living, right? I'll, I'll take the money. Yeah, uh, there was really no, no questions about the, I, 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 where the contributions were coming from. Uh, he did need the money. Uh, again, what he was, it, it's, what's the problem in front of you? The problem in front of him was not uh, getting known as an outsider, taking on the system, uh, showing a point of principle that he thinks uh, would help him get elected. 
which might have been the 92 description. Uh, now it was a pragmatic view of how do I get my message out about the need for these new taxes. And so, and you're unlikely in these types of ballot measure campaigns ever to be attacked like you would in a candidate campaign about where your resources are coming from. So it was a non-issue back then. Your political profile really uh, elevated around the BART strike. And that was something where you came out against uh, stri strikes for you know public uh, transportation workers. And that was really a centerpiece, I think, of your campaign when you ran for the state Senate. How did you feel the opposition from labor in, in that episode? Well, it, was, it, it stung me to the extent that uh, I'd always had a good relationship with labor. Uh, I didn't interpret uh, saying that they needed to work out their differences at the bargaining table as being anti-labor. Uh, but it but was, they did. Didn't they, they certainly did. And, and I guess the thing, the dynamic was that if one union, the BART union, said I was bad, that all the unions had to join in, in brotherhood and sisterhood and say I was bad. And that's the formulation of the opposition to my candidacy was not just from a single union, but how everybody had to join together. And, uh, and that still and that stung then. It's, it stings today uh, because they certainly still have not been able to go beyond that particular issue, uh, which really? is Really? So you still, they, they still, how does that play out today then? Uh, well, if you look at my opponent in my March primary, uh, she's just got $61,000 in the last few days uh, from the uh, BART union, led by the BART union. So uh, they're engaged once again in a, in a battle to, uh, for, to uh, stop my uh, reelection. So that's kind of is what it is. And you represent a, an area uh, in the East Bay, a, a group of districts, both on the Assembly and Senate side, that have always been closer to purple than many areas uh, in California. And you've got some notoriety for having these town hall meetings with then uh, Assembly GOP, uh, Catherine Baker, um, and, you know, taking almost, I think you guys called it a tour uh, of the district. Kind of describe how did that relationship come about and what made you all decide to do that in a bipartisan fashion, which, you know, we should say, does we don't see that a lot. Well, when I was elected to the Senate, uh, I had the view then and now that uh, our jobs are to work together with all of the elected representatives from whatever party they're from, uh, that if they were, were willing to be constructive problem solvers, then I was happy to, to partner and try to uh, help our communities. And Catherine Baker represented that point of view. Uh, my Senate district has been represented by Republicans in the past in Contra Costa County. So it is uh, a, a more moderate-leaning uh, Senate district. And Catherine Baker proved to be a very uh, able and cooperative partner of mine in the legislature. We co-sponsored a lot of measures together, enacted some great laws uh, dealing with uh, whether it was guns, uh, closing the loophole on the assault weapon ban, uh, water conservation, to truth in lending for business loans. We did a lot of things together. And, and a part of that was to engage our community together. And it, it was a different dynamic to go into these town halls and not just have Democrats in the audience. And for her, Republicans, we had both. And we could talk about our issues constructively in, in front of folks. And I think it was well received. And, and she also was uh, you know, supportive of climate change measures, LGBT rights, abortion rights, and so on. But clearly, that wasn't enough uh, for the Democratic Party, at least the activists in the party. And she was ultimately defeated. And, and I forget, did you endorse her over her Democratic I, opponent? I didn't take a position in the race. Uh, she was uh, beaten by Assemblywoman, now Assemblywoman Rebecca Bauer Cahan. And she, uh, Assemblywoman Cahan has been a great partner of mine this last year in the legislature, again, 
She's the elected representative. My job is to partner and work with anyone who wants to constructively help our communities, and she was a very able partner as well. Do you do the town hall meetings with her? We've done four town hall meetings in our first year together. So, And do you see a downside, I guess, for the, the state legislature as a whole, as maybe more moderate Republicans uh, like Catherine Baker are either picked off in elections or leave the party? I mean, is there an effect to the, to the whole body? Well, speaking generally now, not about a specific person, uh, I think it's a, it's a little unusual when you want to reach across the aisle and ask Republicans to stretch and cast votes on issues that you think are important in your community. And then when the election comes around, you, you turn around and you try to defeat them. And I think in the old days, uh, there was respect for, uh, for any legislator from either party that was willing to stretch and find those partnerships. And that has gone away. And so, yes, I, I did enjoy the, the uh, town halls and the work with Catherine Baker because it it tried to set a tone of civility and respect that uh, I think has been lacking in our political system today and that political dialogue today is that we are stronger when we find partnerships. The policy is better when we can do it through partnerships. Uh, you've mentioned some of the a- examples where Catherine Baker stretched. Well, that's beca- that created better laws. And uh, I-, I-, I think it's we need to restore that. I mean, that's part of an important part of why uh, I'm in the legislature and not retired somewhere is because I think that we need to promote that civility, that cooperation, that bipartisanship. Does that make me less of a Democrat? Does that make me less of a progressive Democrat? No, not at all. Now, people want to use it to describe me as less than a progressive Democrat, but they're flat out wrong. And that's the framing that does happen in our political system. Uh, That's why people need to be skeptical, listen to great uh, stations like KQED to get the facts and understand the depth of these issues that were being debated but not accept the, the, the silly framing that does go on often. Do you think Catherine Baker has a future in politics in that area as a Republican? Could she win? There's a cycle to politics. Yeah, it's cyclical. And, uh, you know, the Democrats are on top today. Uh, we certainly can make some mistakes and be on the bottom tomorrow. So, uh, and that's not to be personal to Catherine Baker. She's a very talented uh, attorney and, uh, and, and former representative, and I don't know what her future holds for her. Uh, but I do know that we can't get caught up in this idea that the Democrats are going to be in charge once now and forever. We as Democrats and as progressive Democrats need to act responsibly. And I think that's the way to create longevity in our political system. But uh, as we've seen in the past, we can be our own worst enemies and, uh, and, and, and the political uh, dice can turn uh, pretty quickly. Gavin Newsom has been in office uh, about a year now. How would you grade him? I think he's done a very good job. I've, I've been impressed with Governor Newsom, uh, his engagement, uh, his setting of priorities, Uh, And I think that on a lot of levels, uh, he's had an outstanding first year. All right. We are out of time. Thanks so much for coming in. Happy New Year. We'll see you next week in Sacramento. It's going to be, I'm sure, a busy legislative calendar. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer this week is Jeremy Siegel. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. Uh, KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can follow me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our upcoming podcast, The Political Mind of Jerry Brown from KQED. Happy New Year, everybody. Hi, I'm 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.